open our Bibles to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15. Last week we started 2 Samuel 15, and what I'd like to do tonight is we're going to finish the chapter, and, and Lord willing, we'll get into the uh, chapter 16 as well. And I'd just like to read uh, the first nine verses of chapter 15, because that's really where we left off last time we were together, it was a read at uh, verse 9. So let's just read this. It says, After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate, and so it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such and such a tribe of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land. And everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, and then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And now it came to pass after 40 years, but this is actually after four years. Um, it's just a mistranslation there, we believe. Uh, it came to pass after four years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord, for your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Jeshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king, David, said to him, Go in peace. And so he arose and went to Hebron. Now, if you remember, prior to this, uh, Absalom had fled to Jeshur, which is in the northern part of Israel, just actually northeast of the Sea of Galilee, if you were to look at a map of Israel. And the reason that Absalom fled there is because his grandfather um, lived up there. Because remember, even though Absalom was the third eldest son of David, uh, David had other wives. In fact, and it tells us in the, second, uh, in the third chapter of, of this very book that in Hebron there were six uh, sons born to David in Hebron by six different mothers. And it just so happened that Absalom's mother was the daughter of the king of Jeshur, which is up north in Israel. And so it was very natural for Absalom to flee there. And why did he flee? He fled because he killed David's firstborn son, Amnon. And why did he kill him? Because Absalom had a younger sister. Her name was Tamar, if you remember. And Tamar was a blood sister, a full sister of Absalom, a half-sister of Amnon, David's firstborn son. But Tamar was a full-blood brother for, of, of Absalom. And so what had happened, if you remember, and how could you forget, because this is such a horrible thing to, to talk about, much less to, um, for, to happen in real life. Remember, Amnon had... Uh, coerced his half-sister into the bedroom with her. The Bible tells us that he loved her, but what he really did is he lusted after her because it says that he became thin over her. He, he, he had this great passion and desire for her. 
so much so that it became, uh, he began to lose weight because of this lust of his. And I, I can understand in, in our culture, and we, we've seen uh, men just an, an inordinate um, uh, display of affection for a woman because of their lust, they, they can do all kinds of crazy things. And sometimes left unchecked, it becomes a sickness. And I believe that Amnon had such a desire for her. She became an idol to him, so much so that he began to lose weight. And so remember, he coaxed her in, feigning to be sick. And David even encouraged her to go in and minister to her brother. And so she did. And the Bible tells us that she was a knockout. She was beautiful. And Amnon, of course, was struck with her so much. And that's why. And so she comes into the room, into the, and he leads her into the bedroom, and he tells all of his assistants to leave the, the palace or the place where um, um, Amnon was. Remember, he was a firstborn son, so he had attendants and people attending to him. And so he told them all to leave. And in the process of time, he forced Tamar into a physical relationship, raped her. And we know that David heard about the incident but did nothing. And David did nothing, and perhaps he did nothing because he was already still smarting from his own sin. Remember, it was David just prior to this. We, we, the time frame, it may be a year or so. We don't, I don't really have that fact on hand. But just prior to this, remember David had taken Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He didn't rape her, but, but he was out in the fighting a battle, and he um, called for her, and she came into the king's palace one night, and he had a physical relationship with her. And, she, and then after she was found to be pregnant, David sought for Uriah, who was out in a battle laying siege to another city, and they would be out there for months at a time. And so he called his servant, who was in his army, called him back to his house. Hey, how did the, how's the war going? How's the siege going? And in the process of that, David thought, if I could get him home and to get, send him home to his own wife, that they would have relations. And then when she was found to be pregnant, oh, wow. And then David would be exonerated. But God had a different plan. God would not let David get away with this sin. And, and so Uriah showed more honor than David did, and knowing that his brothers were still fighting out in the field, he would not go to his own home for a nice meal and to be with his wife, knowing that his brothers were out in the field. And so he refused to do it. So David had to give him a letter, and he wrote the letter, and, he, and the letter was basically a letter to Joab, who was the commander of David's army. And he says, when, when you go to lay siege against the city and you go against a battle, I want you to put Uriah in the front of the battle and then withdraw from him. And so here Uriah takes this memo that's been sealed with this king's signet ring, and it can't be opened, and he carries back to Joab, several miles away, his own death sentence. So David is still stinging from the rebuke of that sin, not only of the adultery with a man's wife, but also killing her husband. And you know, when we read this, this is not just a story. We have to remember that this was an actual historical event. And this is the same King David that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. And that was also the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, how could God say that with all of these glaring sins in his life? The simple matter is that David truly repented. 
Repentance is something that's near and dear to God's heart. It's one thing to do something and to never repent of it, to never ask you know, forgiveness for it, and to continue on like nothing ever happened. That is not a good place to be. But David, when confronted finally, he broke like an egg and he repented. He was not the same man. But you recall in the uh, 12th chapter of this very book that there was... Uh, uh, there was now going to be consequences for David's sin. And remember, God spoke to Nathan the prophet to go to David and to speak to him. And as a result of him sleeping with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and as a result of killing Uriah, this is what God said to David. This would be the consequence. Now, it tells us in chapter 12, as, as we've already read, that God forgave David because David's heart was really repentant. He, he really broke which is a wonderful thing. That's where God wants us all to be. He doesn't want us to continue in sin. That The whole result of these consequences is sometimes to get us to break. But even if we do break and we confess it and we're restored with God, there are always consequences that follow. And God, for some reason, even though you can be forgiven, there are consequences that follow. Perhaps you've done something in your life where you know it was a sin issue. It was a sin that you did, something you said, something you did, whatever it was. And the person forgave you, and God forgives you. But unfortunately, there's this thing called consequence. Because whenever we sin, there are consequences. What does the Bible tell us in Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is what? It's death. And it may be physical death, depending on the sin that you're committing. If you're a heroin addict, then that may be a sin unto death, because you may get a hot shot. And I, there's people that I know who that has happened to. And there are other sins that may not lead you to physical death right away, but if left unconfessed and unrepented of, it will lead them to spiritual death, which after they have died physically, they will spend an eternity in hell. That's what the Bible says. Nobody likes to talk about hell, but here at Calvary Chapel, we talk about it <laughs> because it's in the Bible. And guess what? Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else. And it's not because he liked it, believe me, that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He would much rather the sinner come to repentance, right? And hopefully all of us have come to repentance. But consequences. And this is what God told to David through his prophet Nathan. He said, Now therefore, as a result of these things, David, and this is in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And we already looked at the sword already devouring his his son, because Absalom killed Amnon. We've already seen that happen. And that was just the beginning. And then he goes on and he says this, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun. And so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, and the child also who is born of you shall surely die. And therein is the consequence for David's sin. And it was still being meted out. It was still being played out. In fact, tonight as we look at Absalom, 
and his treachery and his treason, if you will, is going to fulfill what God had spoken in verse 11 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to see it being played out. And it's not going to end there because we know, spoiler alert, Absalom is going to be killed by David's nephew, Joab, later on, a few chapters from now. So the sword is continuing to devour his household. And again, David knew he was forgiven, but there were consequences. And that's always the part of it that stinks the most, isn't it? <laughs> you know, when you, when you know you've blown it and God has forgiven you, and he has. You know, the Bible says that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, right? That's a promise from God. He forgives you if we confess it. It's like, he, it's like you never did it. He forgets it. He chooses to forget it because he puts the blood of his son over that sin. He covers it. He no longer sees the sin. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing for us to remember. Because if you're the type of person that when you sin, you confess it, but you still walk around beating yourself up for several days or weeks because of what you've done, you don't understand the depth of that promise. Because the depth of the promise, I believe, is not only forgiving you, but giving you the grace to turn around as if you'd never done it. And I tell you, when you can get to that place and you really believe that, not, not, not um, condoning anything and not acting like you can forget it, because certainly we have brains, we, we can't forget things usually, but God chooses to forget. He casts our sin as far as the east is from the west, and guess what? They never meet. If you go north and south, you go north and then you go south, and you go north and you go south, but east and west, it never meets. You start going east, you keep going east, you never go west. Do you get the point? His, that's his grace, that's his mercy, that's how much he forgives. And that's something that you really need to hold near and dear to your heart because it'll save you from a lot of sorrow, a lot of heartache, and probably a lot of pharmacy bills. Because when you have a, a, a peace with God because of your sin and your, con your confession to him, you'll have the peace of God. And the peace of God will cause the, the sinner... <laughs> Although saved by grace, it'll cause that person to lay their head on the pillow at night and be able to sleep and know that their father loves them, has restored them, and forgives them. That is the kind of irresistible grace that the world needs to know. And see, you and I are the ambassadors of that grace. We are the ambassadors the, uh, of, that, of that message, the gospel message. It's good news, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you agree? I mean, it would be really bad news. I mean, can you imagine that, telling everybody, hey, I got some bad news for you. You sinned, and you're going straight to hell when you die. How many people will come to that church? How many people will be drawn to Jesus? If, all he, you know, if it's just an angry God up in the sky somewhere, just waiting for his subjects to mess up so he can squash them like a grape. See, religion and people in religion and other denominations, they sometimes teach that. They may not teach it, but they, they, you feel it because... Every, it, you're just waiting for the lightning bolt. And, but God's character is not like that. He loves people. He loves you. He doesn't want to see you continuing to wallow in your misery because sin is misery. You know how long it was from the moment that David did those sins, you know, the murder and the adultery, and before God finally broke his heart? It was a year. It was one year that David was walking around, and he records for us 
in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, I believe it is, he records for us that he, it's like everything was drying up on the inside. He knew he was guilty, and, 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 and he was just trying to cover it up. He didn't want anybody to know about it. But inside, it was like a cancer eating him away little by little. And he, he, he said, I, I can, it's like I'm just drying up like a pot shirt. I'm just drying up on the inside. And I've got no confidence. I've got no, and, and I believe that was the, one of the worst moments of his life. And boy, there's something so wonderful when we can just go to God and we can pour out and confess before him. You don't need to go to a priest. Believe me, Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us in Hebrews, He is the intermediary. He is the one that we go to. I mean, the Bible does also say you can go to a friend and confess your faults to one another. There's nothing wrong with that if you trust them. But we can go to God because when we sin, we sin against Him. We don't sin against each other necessarily, although we do that too, don't we? Isn't life wonderful? (laughs) So... David here is smarting from his own sin. So let's pick up in verse 10 of chapter 15. So here we see Absalom. Again, David having done nothing. Being a not such a great example of a parent to his sons, especially after his sin. It's almost like he just checked out as a parent. And parents, we can't check out. Even if your son or your daughter or whoever it is, that young person in your life, even if they do the same sin and they know that you've done the same sin, you can't just act like nothing has happened. You've got to be that source of comfort for them. You've got to be that source of that, 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 that governor in their life, that one that, that they can confide in, the one that they can trust, the one that you can tell the truth even when it hurts. Just because you've, you've stepped in the same thing that your son or daughter stepped in doesn't, give you the, doesn't mean that you can just check out and say, well, I, really, I can't speak any truth to you because I'm guilty of the same thing. No. The devil loves to get you in that place for saying, because you did the same thing, you really can't speak. And you know what I say to that? Tough. You speak. You speak. You have to speak. Speak to your kids. Speak to each other. Be honest with one another. Don't, let, don't lower the bar because you've messed up too. And that, see, that's a problem what happened with David, I believe. Because of his sin, he, in his own heart, he just lost all credibility. And because Absalom had killed now Amnon, even though Amnon deserved to die, to be honest with you, so did David. But Absalom had no right to kill Amnon. He deserved death as well for killing. It didn't go through the right channels. That's why we have a, a, a process. Is it still available in our country, a legal process? My mother was a bailiff in the Lee County Sheriff's Department. She's retired now, so I can say the name. But she would tell me how often she heard cases year after year and and they were guilty as anything else, and they got away on a technicality, or they, 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 they were brought to justice. And through the process of, of cross-examination and all these different things, they found, and the jury came back and says, you are guilty of this crime. The DNA points to you. The, the fingerprints, it's all over the gun. It's all over the knife. Your DNA was at the crime scene. And somebody even saw you do it. 
They captured it on, on an iPhone and uploaded it to TikTok. Busted. <laughs> right? Verse 10. <laughs> it says, Then Absalom, notice, sent spies through all the tribes. And, and here Absalom is just stealing the hearts of the people. He knows that his father's not doing anything, so he's like, you know what, I'm going to stand in the gate. The gate was the place where they did commerce. Around every guarded city, there would be the gate. And the gate would where, was where the judges would meet, where they would do commerce and business. And so what Absalom would do is he would set out a little further from the gate. And as people were coming into the city that had a lawsuit, he was there to help them. What a benevolent guy he is. Just willing to help his dad out. What a great son. Such a wonderful young man. I'm so proud of Absalom, you know, just helping me out so much like that. And all the while, there was war in his heart. He wanted to overthrow his father, angry at his dad. Maybe angry because he did nothing when Amnon raped his sister. Maybe he's thinking to himself, he's not fit to be king. But me, on the other hand, Absalom would say to himself, I think I'd make a pretty good king. Yes, Majesty sounds good. I like that. I like the way it rings. So, so now he seeks to win the hearts, and he's winning the hearts of, of the men of Israel. Absalom sent spies through all the tribes, verse 10, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And um, it's interesting here that Absalom doesn't perform his treachery in the capital at Jerusalem. He goes to Hebron, not too far away, but this is where David first reigned, remember, for seven years when he just reigned over Judah. And this is where also Absalom and his five other brothers were born in Hebron, the same exact place. And at Hebron, he could get a following away from the eye of his father and those in Jerusalem. And, he would, um, and then he would go to Jerusalem after he got his following and he would seek to overthrow his father. And um, remember, David at this time, he's getting older, and Amnon and Chiliab, or Kiliab, or Daniel is his name, uh, the second born of David. Both of these men had died. Uh, Chiliab died when probably when he was real young, but Amnon had died from the hand of Absalom. So now Absalom is the heir apparent. It seems that he should be the one to reign on the throne, and he thinks that too. And so... Um, so, and with Absalom, notice, went 200 men, notice, invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. And these men would be willing because he was the heir apparent. David, for some reason, didn't propagate the idea that his son, who was already born at this time, Solomon, but very young, he, didn't, he evidently didn't propagate the, the, the idea, the thought that Absalom would be, or I'm sorry, that Solomon would be the one to take his place. Because had he done that, then all of this subterfuge probably wouldn't happen. Actually, it probably would have because that's the way it is, isn't it? But it seemed to be not very widely known. But these men, they were invited to go with him. They were completely clueless of the motivation of Absalom. They're thinking, hey, you're the king's, you're the next one in line for the throne. We're going to be behind you. David's getting old, and everybody loves you, Absalom, and you, you got that beautiful flowing blonde hair, you gorgeous guy. I mean, he was. He's a handsome fellow. The Bible tells us that. In fact, he cut his hair every year. It was like five pounds. 
he, he, gloried, he gloried in the fact that, you know, he got out that little scale you see at Wegmans in the, um, in the bulk area, and he put his hair in a bag and tied a little green thing around it and weighed it and punched in the code. <gasps> Five pounds. How much is that worth? I can sell that to Sotheby's or uh, whatever. So anyway, a really attractive man. And unfortunately, isn't it true that people look at a leader? They very, they very seldomly look at the character of the person. But if he's tall, dark, and handsome and drives a fast car, we'll vote for him. Can he speak well? Is he a great speaker? Does he dress well? Can he look right at the camera and say, I love you? And all the women, just like, you know, in, uh, in Ed Sullivan's show back in the 60s, you know, and the Beatles came on, ah, they're losing their, you know, pulling their hair out. You know, Absalom was that kind of guy. But I digress. Let's get back to the Scripture Thank you, Lord. But they were willing to go because he was the heir apparent, but they had no idea of his motives. You know what it says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Do you find that you know that about yourself, that, you are a, uh, that your heart is desperately wicked? I have found that in my own heart. In fact, that's one of the reasons I came to Christ, is I, I was confronted with this evil heart of mine, and I had to come to terms with it. Because I'm, I'm a, I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin, but I sin because I was born a sinner. I was born, it's in my DNA. And that's why the Bible says you must be born again. You must be born again. Certainly you were born by your mother, and, and all that, and she carried you for nine months. But when you came out, you were a rotten sinner when you came out. <laughs> it doesn't look that way. You know, my daughter was born. You know, she, she comes out, and I cut the cord, and, you, and after they wipe her down and everything, you're like, oh, she's so beautiful, and she is. And, you know, you're, you're just thinking, oh, my gosh. You know, this little sinner is going to break my heart. <laughs> you know, but we are. And until we come to terms with that and come into agreement with God over that, then there's really no reason to be saved then, isn't there? I need to be saved. I need to be born again. Why? Because I'm hopeless in my sin. I was destined for hell, and yet God placed His Spirit within me just by believing in Him. And then He says, I secure you. Aren't you glad? Do you know you have the assurance of salvation? The Bible teaches that, by the way. Why is that? Because God doesn't make a mistake. When he takes up residence in your heart, when you ask him into your heart, it is a done deal as far as God is concerned. Now it's just a question of day-by-day -day sanctification. And what does it say in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3? This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's a process. That means setting you apart from the world and the things of the world. And that takes a process it takes time to, to prepare us, to get the world out of us, to rid us of the flesh, so that by the time we're in our 80s or sometime, we're not going to be perfect yet. <laughs> we're not going to be perfect. But we'll be closer if we're really walking with the Lord. But the heart, above all things, is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And God answers his own question. He says, I, the Lord, I search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So Absalom here, he's counting on the fact that those around him 
would willingly go without question because he was David's son and the heir apparent. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3, it says this, Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. And I can say amen to that. It's not something that people like to talk about, but it's the truth. It is the truth. That's what the Bible says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no, not one that is good. That's why Jesus said to a very religious man, Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not even a question of, is it a good idea or not? No, it's, it, whether you think it's a good idea or not is irrelevant. The, the, the fact of the matter is, you need to be saved. You need to be born again. The Spirit of God taking up residence in this old nature of mine, suppressing that old nature, sort of standing on it like a lid. You know, it's like the Holy Spirit standing on a lid of that old nature. And isn't it crazy that sometimes even as Christians we have this ability to kind of lean a little bit to the side and allow some of that to kind of ooze away, the old nature coming out again. We have that ability to just kind of slide over and just let it come out. Ah. And you lift up the lid a little bit, and what happens? We get a taste of that old nature, and it's still in with it. And Paul even said, there's these two things warring in my soul. One thirsts for righteousness, and the other does not. And he goes, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am. And he knows that it was God, the Spirit of God, always being that governor, that one who would suppress that old nature. I don't want my old nature to express itself. I had plenty of time in the world, haven't you? And yet our flesh, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, and there's the kicker. It's pleasurable for a season. There's no lie about that. But ah, the bill to pay after you have sinned. And sometimes the bill is very high. Because how can you restore the trust, guys, when you've cheated on your wife? How can you restore that trust? Does it, does it happen overnight? Does it happen in a week? Doesn't it take months, sometimes even years, for her to trust you again? And yet you've, you've allowed that thing And the devil says, oh, this is an opportunity you'll never get again. You better do it. And the Lord's going, don't you dare. It could happen to women, too, against their husbands. You get some fancy guy like Absalom coming up who treats you the way that your husband used to treat you when you were first married, and now 35 years have gone. He doesn't look at you the same way, perhaps. And an Absalom comes up with a flowing hair who just thinks you're really something. And ladies, you better be careful. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness, notice, is in their hearts. Just like what we're seeing in Absalom's life, madness is in their hearts while, while they live. And after that, they go, after that, they go to the dead. They go to the grave. They go to Hades or they go to Sheol the abode of the dead. And it's interesting that as he's taking these in, in, invited men from Jerusalem, Absalom in his heart, he had orchestrated this plot and perhaps had been refining it in his heart for some time. We know that a, year, a few years went by, so he's had plenty of time to hatch this plan. And there's nothing worse than a person 
You know, you can understand a person who's impetuous and in the moment of a, of a passionate moment, you know, they, they hear about something, they act out in, in a rash kind of behavior. That I can understand. But for someone to be calculating and waiting and just waiting, patiently waiting for the right moment, an opportunist, waiting for the right moment to spring and all the while composing in their head this evil plot, that's Absalom. Verse 12, it says, Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, which he offered sacrifice, while he offered sacrifices, excuse me, and the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Now, this man, Ahithophel, um, it says that his advice. Uh, his advice that he gave in, the, in, in those days was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. And so was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. We'll read about that in the next chapter. Um, and this Ahithophel was the grandfather of guess who? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 3, it says, uh, so David sent, when he had the affair with uh, Bathsheba, he sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said to him, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then in chapter 23 of this book, it says, Eliphalet, the son of Ahazbei, the son of Maacathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite. So we see the family line here. So Amiel was her father, but her grandfather of Bathsheba was Ahithophel. And this would mean that, obviously, that she, he, he was the grandfather. And he certainly had motive, didn't he, to be angry with David? And yet he was David's counselor. He was one of the men that was highly esteemed. David looked up to him. And all the while, this man was just probably waiting for an opportunity to just see the cards come crashing down on David, waiting. And this was such a great opportunity because now Absalom, so cunning and so calculating, he waited and waited and waited. Now he's like, Ahithophel, I want to talk to you for a minute. I want to go take out David. This is how we're going to do it. And I need you to be on my side and and certainly Ahithophel is thinking to himself, you know what, I'm with you all the way, buddy. He killed my son-in-law. Now my, my daughter, my granddaughter, the firstborn son from her dies. He's got every motive in the world to be angry. In fact, in Psalm 41, David would write about this time in his life as he is going through this and I love what he says in Psalm 41. You might want to write just Psalm 41 and maybe Psalm 55 off in the margin of your Bible because if you read those two Psalms in connection with this chapter around Ahithophel, it'll make a lot of sense because in Psalm 41, verse 9, uh, David goes on, he says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. We believe that he's speaking of Ahithophel, this counselor of his, this good friend, and in Psalm 55, it says, For it was not an enemy, and this is in verse 12, For it is not an enemy who reproached me, then I could bear it. Nor is it the one who hated me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, 
A man, my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance, we took sweet counsel together and walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. And as for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray, and I cry aloud, and he will hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many against Against me, and God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from of old. And because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God, and he has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. Boy, this sounds a lot like not only Absalom, but certainly Ahithophel. Absalom being David's own son, and then Ahithophel being a, uh, a very respected, highly respected man. Verse 13, it says, Now a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David either ignored this fact, or he was completely unaware of it. We don't really know. But again, he was in this kind of what I would call a despondent state, not really being a good father, just kind of checking out, just... You know, the, the Lord was healing him, and he was just so wrapped up in his own thing that he just let the whole thing slide. He, he probably, if he did know that Absalom was stealing the hearts of the men of the city, he just, he's like, well, you know, whatever. But maybe he didn't know at all. We really don't know. And so David, verse 14, said to all the servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom and make haste to depart lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. A couple of things here to remember. Um, again, David did nothing concerning the rape by, of Tamar by Amnon and Absalom killed him. And um, you know, Absalom and his treachery, stealing the hearts of the men of Israel, and the second thing to consider is by leaving Jerusalem, David would also know who was really loyal to him because they would probably continue to follow David. It's interesting that it was mostly foreigners who followed David, not his own countrymen. Do you find that? The, the Cherethites and the Pelethites and the Gittites, 600 of these men were foreigners. They were foreign mercenaries. Those are the guys that followed David as he left Jerusalem in fear of Absalom coming back to Jerusalem. And I love this because as a good shepherd, David, under duress, he leads those who are closest to him out of the way of danger into the wilderness, anticipating Absalom's overthrow. Because if you were to look at a map of Jerusalem and you had it in front of you, and if you were looking at me and this was the map, Jerusalem lies here in the Temple Mount. Then there's the, the, the Kidron, uh, the Brook Kidron right there, and then on, and it, it goes down in elevation. Then it goes up the hill over here to the Mount of Olives, and that's where David, we're going to see him taking his entourage, these 600 men and the immediate members of his family from Jerusalem, from the palace there in Zion, down the hill into the Kidron, and then up the hill into, Mount of, into the Mount of Olives area, and then going further east into the wilderness of Judah, and then finally going to the Jordan River. And as a good shepherd... David also did not want Jerusalem, which he had beautified, had spent a lot of money, had built it up to be, he didn't want it to be a war zone. 
He wanted when Absalom came to Jerusalem, he didn't want bloodshed. He didn't want a lot of, you know, destruction of the city. He just kind of checked out and he just left. And his attitude was, if God wants to put me back on the throne, he is more than able to. But I'm not going to allow these people to suffer for what's happening in my family. And I love that about David, that even in his duress, even in his greatest pain, one of the greatest pains, I believe, of his life, to still be caring for people. And see, that's what a good shepherd does. That's what Jesus does for you and I. He is the good shepherd, right? It tells us that in John chapter 10. He is the good shepherd. He leads us out. He's the one. He's the example. He goes before us, protects us. He's the one who goes out into the field to make sure that we don't, we don't eat anything poisonous. He's the one who leads us in the green pastures where it's, the grass is plenty, where we can feed. He leads us beside the still waters. That whole Psalm 23 just paints such a, a wonderful picture of serenity and peace and contentedness. I mean, you ever seen a contented sheep before? I remember seeing a sheep, and just he had his legs tucked underneath him and this big fall, ball of fuzz. And he's sitting there, and just the cutest thing you'd ever seen in your life. You know, they are really harmless. They, they, they don't even have really, I mean, they have teeth, but they don't, they don't attack. They, they're just like, what are they going to do? I mean, they, they can't even run away that quick either. But he, he had his legs tucked up underneath him, and he's just laying, laying over like this with his mouth, and he's a big, fat sheep. He's eating grass, you know, just pulling it out laying there all nice and comfortable. You know, he's got, his, he's got his L.L. Bean Wicked Good slippers on. He's got one of those nice blankets that are covering him. You know, the fireplace is crackling. You know, mulled cider is on the stove, whistling. Just a peace and comfort. And see, that's what Jesus, he brings to our soul, our life. He brings that peace, and I love that about him. But he is the good shepherd. But David, even in his duress, he still a wonderful man of God and always looking out for not just himself, but more importantly, others around him. And so verse 15, And the king's servant said to the king, We are your servants. We're ready to do whatever the Lord my king commands. And happy is a king. Happy is a king or ruler who has people like this supporting him. And happy are the people who have a king who treats them and cares for them like David treated them. Had it been Saul, he would have said, yeah, you're on your own. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to save my own neck. You guys can do what you want. But see, David had a different heart. And that's why God could use him mightily. And the Bible would still call him a man after God's own heart because of his character. Yes, he made mistakes. Have you made mistakes? I've made my, my share of mistakes. And guess what? I'm probably going to make more. I don't want to make more. But you're probably going to make some really bad mistakes. And aren't you glad that you, you can go to the mediator? You can go to Jesus and, and say, Lord, forgive me. I know what I did was wrong. And then you get it right. You go to the person you've offended and you confess it and you're re- hopefully your relationship can be restored. Sometimes that works out. I love it when it does, but sometimes it doesn't. But at least you get your heart right before God. You can't tell what somebody else is going to do, right? But too bad, Right? It's, it's an unfortunate thing when it doesn't happen. Verse 16, it says, But the king went out with all of his household after him, but the king left ten women. Notice, they were concubines to keep the house. And we're going to find that these are going to be the ten women that Absalom is going to defile on the top of the palace. And he's going to do it at the request, at the advice of the greatest counselor of Israel, Ahithophel. 
the man whose counsel was like oracles of God. He's going to tell Absalom, hey, you want to make sure that you want to seal this deal, Absalom? Do you want to make, you want to kind of cement the deal when you come into Jerusalem? Here's what you do. You take your father's ten concubines, as part of his harem, and you go in and you sleep with those ladies. And when you do that, you're sealing the deal. Everyone will know about it, and it's done at that point. You've crossed the Rubicon. There's no going back now. Verse 17 says, And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts of the city. That's what he's talking about. So you can see this. When I see this picture, I, you know, having, I've had the blessed privilege, and I mean that with all my heart, of being to Israel on three different occasions. And seeing the land and seeing where this happened is so touching because even as I'm reading it, I can see it in my mind's eye of where David would come out of Zion there. And they, and they found out where his palace used to be. It's actually south of the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is. It's on the southeast uh, side, down here by the, the Gahon Spring, and it's down there in his palace. They found it. It's there. You can visit it today, the remnants of it. But he, to see him, to see that this is the area where he left, and he went down into the Kidron, and then he goes up into the Mount of Olives, and then goes further into the Judean wilderness, and it's an area that David knew well because when he ran from Saul in his early days, he would often uh, find refuge in the hills and the clefts of the rock. And believe me, there are thousands of them along the shore of the, of the Jordan River down there by the Dead Sea. You can get lost. You can hide people in there and they'll never find them ever. I mean, it is that uh, incredible. And so David was taking these people perhaps there or perhaps even further east across into what we would know as Transjordan today. But he's, uh, he, he stopped at the outskirts, and then in verse 18 it says, Then all of his servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites. The Gittites were men from Gath. These were Philistine mercenaries. These were the perennial enemies of Israel. And yet David, when he had that flirtation with the Philistines, when he was... Uh, on the run from Saul, he actually gained the support and the love and the admiration of many of the men in Philistine, in, in, of the Philistines. So these Gittites, these Philistines, they are loyal to David more so than the men of Judah. <laughs> and so the Cherethites, these are bodyguards, the Cherethites, the, the Pelethites, and the Gittites. Notice, 600 men who had followed him from Gath. That's one of the five cities of the five major cities of the Philistines. And notice they passed before the king. And then the king said to Itai, the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday, Itai. Why, why are you coming with me? You, you just came the day, you know, just yesterday. And I appreciate your loyalty, but you've got to go back and you've got to serve my son. Notice the resignation in David and all of this. As you read this, he's just like, you know, if God wants me back, he's going to bring me back. If he wants me to die, I deserve it. <laughs> that was David's heart. He's like, I deserve it as the consequence. I know I'm forgiven. I know where I'm going. Isn't that amazing? You know, the world hates a man like that. The world hates the fact that a Christian can make a mistake. A born-again believer can make a really horrible, horrible mistake, 
can sin in, 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 in something so public, and again, not to condone it, not to condone it at all, but when they do fall, the world hates it when the person truly repents. And maybe they have to take some time off, but then they get back into the game again. And boy, they hate that. What they really want is for when the Christian to fall, they want God to send a lightning bolt and consume them and make a black spot on the pavement. See, that's what they want. But that's not what they get. Why is that? Because God is a God of grace, and all he cares about is the heart. Where is your heart? Is your heart a forgiving heart? Have you forgiven? Have you forgiven others like you have been forgiven? Jesus said, if you don't forgive people, neither will I forgive you. There's a heavy one that I don't even want to mess with because those are his words. It's important for us then to forgive, isn't it? To have a heart of forgiveness toward others. And Peter would say, how many times, Lord? Seven times? If, I forgive, if my brother does something against me, should I forgive him seven times? Thinking that, oh, wow, Peter, that's an awesome number. It's a number of perfection, by the way. Good job. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. Not just 490 either. He says, you just keep forgiving because God, the God in heaven, God the Father has forgiven you. More than that. And I love that about God. See, that's his character. Doesn't that make you want to fall in love with him even more? Doesn't that, want, doesn't that make you want more of him? Isn't his grace and his love irresistible? It's sort of like, who can resist that kind of love and grace? It's a love that nobody understands because it is so it's not demonstrated perfectly here on the earth. Even the love of a father to a daughter or a son, if that relationship is really good, even that is pale in comparison to the love of God to one of his children. And I don't know about you, but that just sets me on fire. And I love the fact that God loves me in spite of me. He doesn't look upon Rob Kellogg. He looks upon Jesus whose blood is covering me. He looks upon you because the blood of Christ covers you. Never forget that, especially when you're going through a, a difficult time, especially when you're smarting from something that you've done. So this guy, he says, uh, he says, return and take your brethren back and mercy and truth be with you. And so he was the commander of, this, of the Gittites. And uh, we're going to see later on in this chapter, in just a couple chapters over, that David is going to give this man, he's going to make him a third, uh, the commander over a third of his army, this faithful man who is a Philistine from Gath. He's going to give him authority over a third of his army. I love that. But Itai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or in life, even there also your servant, your servant will be. Do you hear the loyalty in this guy, the loyalty in the service? This kind of loyalty is very rare today. You know, happy is the employer who has an employee who's really loyal. You know, it used to be that way, and I don't know what happened, but many years ago, you know, when the world was a different place. You know, there could be a, a man in a Fortune 500 company who had people all around him that were loyal to the company. And they would, they would, they would take the overtime because it was good for the company. And they would do these things for the company. And then when it came down time for layoffs and things like that, they would spare their most loyal constituents. And now you're just a number. It doesn't matter. 
I mean, you may get on, you may be able to pass through a few of those things, but ultimately, everybody's expendable. <laughs> it seems anyway. They don't like it, but they have to come to you and they say, you know what, my boss is telling me that I've got to let you go. That's the last thing I want to do. I'd rather leave my job, but I've got five kids and a wife who's pregnant and, you know, a kid's got needs and you're single. I'm really sorry, but I can't. I'd love to take the position for, you know, and be in your spot, but I can't. I've got to let you go. But this loyalty that this man had for David, it reminds me of the same loyalty that we see uh, Ruth, that Ruth had when Naomi, remember in the book of Ruth? When Naomi was returning from Moab and she brought her two daughters-in-law with her because her sons, Naomi's sons, who were married to these two Moabite women, they had died in Moab. And so Naomi and her two daughters, Ruth and the uh, other one, I forget her name, um, they, they, they go back to Jerusalem. And halfway you know, through the trip, Naomi looks at Ruth and she goes, you know, why are you staying here? I can't raise up other children for you. Go back to your family and back to your people. And I'm so glad that Ruth stuck it out. And she said this. She says, Entreat me not to leave you. This is Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. This is a Gentile speaking, a pagan Gentile who lived in a pagan environment, she's like, I want, and then she goes on, and your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. I'm going to leave all my idols, and I'm going to follow you, Naomi. There's something about your life, and I'm loyal to you, and I'm going to die where you die, and wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your God, I'm going to serve, because I see the God. I see the influence of that God on your life, and He is real. All this other stuff is just a bunch of nonsense. But him I will serve. And finally, she couldn't dissuade her. So finally, Ruth comes with her. But I love that. Just the loyalty. The loyalty. And so David, and remember Ruth, just as a side note, Ruth is David's great-grandmother. She married Boaz. And then you go down through the genealogy. It's written in a couple places. She was the great-grandmother. This Gentile woman was the great-grandmother of Jesus Christ. I love that. People put labels on people, but God says, I could care less about all that. I'm not worried about that. You think God was wringing his hands going, oh no, they're getting together. How am I going to get out of this? He's like, no, I knew that was going to happen. He didn't make it happen. He knew it was going to happen. And God knows exactly what he's doing. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. Nobody else like him. The devil's none of those things, by the way. Our God is an all-powerful God. There's none like him. Like we sing tonight, there's no one like him. So David said to Itai, go and cross over. So finally, he can't dissuade the guy. He's like, well, come over the Kidron, the brook Kidron with us then, you know, and cross over into the Jordan, into the other parts of the land you know, come with us. Go and cross over. And then Atei the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him, they crossed over. You know, when you think about you know, even Jesus' disciples you know, proclaimed great devotion 
and the fact that they wouldn't leave the Lord, even Peter, but they did, at least initially, because they did not know their own hearts. Do you remember what it was recorded for us in Matthew 26? It says, Peter answered and said to Jesus, even if all were made to stumble because of you. See, we make a lot of boasts, and Itai wasn't making an empty boast. When he says, I'm going to go with you, he meant it, and he did. And yet, even his disciples, even Peter, he says, I, you, I, I, even if all were made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you this night, Peter, before the, roost crow, the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. These were the men closest to him. And again, not to put anything down on the disciples. They were wonderful men. But I, just, I find it interesting, don't you, that this Gittite, this Philistine, was willing to talk the talk and walk the walk. And yet, me included, and even the disciples... We do a lot of talking, but we don't always do a lot of walking. (laughs) I find that interesting. Because the heart of man is fickle and deceitful. Verse 23, And all the country wept with a loud voice, and the people, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. And again, the brook Kidron runs north to south in between the uh, Zion and, and the Mount of Olives. Today that brook is dried up, of course. You can't see it. But So, verse 24, There was Zadok also and all the Levites which uh, with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God. And Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. And then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city, Zadok. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. See, David knew that just having the ark with him did not guarantee any specific outcome. He knew that. He knew it was a relationship with God, not the, the furniture of God. Uh, you know, the, 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 the ark would have been nice. You know, and, and David's like, you know what? If God wants me to come back, I'll see it again. But you know what? Keep that back in Jerusalem. The people are going to need that. Even though I'm not there, the rest of them are going to need it. But it wasn't a rabbit's foot. It wasn't a talisman for good luck for him. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites, they, they acted as if the, the ark was like a rabbit's foot. They brought it into the battle with them and the Philistines, and the ark got stolen from them. They thought by bringing the ark, it was like, well, if we're bringing God into the battle, you guys are toast. We can sit back and drink martinis. No, no, it wasn't anything like that. They thought they could bring it in, and God would just wipe out the enemy. And God says, eh, you're putting too much emphasis on the box instead of me. And I'm going to let the Gentiles take the ark. It's going to break your heart, but I'm going to let them do it because your your devotion is misplaced. And can't we do that? We can, instead of getting our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, we get our eyes fixed on a vessel of Jesus Christ. It could be a pastor. It could be some guy on television. It could be, you know, some famous guy who's written a lot of really good books. It doesn't really matter because we're all the same. Do you understand? No one should come in between you and God. No one. I don't care how wealthy he is, how good of a speaker he is, or even how good-looking he is, or how much money he's got. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the guy can call down fire on national television. Don't let anything or anyone get between you and God. 
And that's the problem with the Israelites in 1 Samuel 4. And David's like, you know what? There's nothing I can do here. If God wants to bring me back, it's, it's, it's a relationship thing. It has nothing to do with the, the ark. I, he revered the ark. He loved it. But he's like, I can't bring that. That's not going to get the job done. It's a relationship with Jesus, right? And so, but it says, but if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. And again, David just resigned to his, his own fate. And it what really wasn't fate. It wasn't blind fate by any means because God knew exactly what he was going to do. But David would willingly surrender to God. Willingly surrender. Let me ask you a question tonight. We probably should stop here because, again, we didn't get through this. There's a lot here. (laughs) But are you fighting against God? Are you fighting against Him or are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to surrender to God? You know, when I look at David's life and I see the things that he went through, David at some point in his repentance and his brokenness. And let me tell you, brokenness is a beautiful thing if it's genuine. If it's false, you're going to continue making yourself look like the hypocrite. But if you are truly broken and God is breaking you, it is such a precious thing in the sight of God. I can't tell you. There is nothing more important to God than seeing one of his children not relying on anything else, not relying on some crutch, not relying on some vice, but just saying, God, here I am. I am yours. You do with me what you want. I tell you what, when you get to that place and you're, and you're serious, God's like, oh, my brother, I got so many wonderful things for you. You're going to have the peace. You're going to have the joy. You're even going to love what you do to serve him. It's almost, it's not even fair. You know, I think about what I get to do. I, I, I can't think of anything more joyful in my life than to do what I'm doing right now. There's nothing on the earth I'd rather be doing. Nothing. And it wasn't my design for my life. It wasn't. I had a different plan for my life. But are you wrestling? Are you fighting with God? Are you still saying, Lord, my will be done? Are you still singing the song, I did it my way? are you still singing the song or are you putting up the white flag and saying Lord I've been around the block long enough it never ends good for me when I dig in my heels and I become obstinate like that dog who's being taken for a drag have you seen an owner taking a a dog for a uh, you know I've seen this the other day I was coming down five mile line and this lady had this big dog and the dog was bigger than she was and she's got it on a leash, right? And she's pulling the dog, and the dog's just like, he's got his feet out, and he's kind of like that, and she's pulling, and his, you know, his, his collar's coming up like that. And I thought to myself, you know, that is just like the sin nature. <laughs> That's the way we are with God. We're like, no, I'm not going to go anywhere. And, you know, and God says, okay. <laughs> you want to be stubborn. And, you know, God's so gracious and loving, he'll say, all right. If you really want it that bad, if you really want your way right now, I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to let you have your way. And he doesn't do it thinking, you know, I'm, I can't wait to squash you like a bug later. No, God says, I'm going to let you do this. You, you really want this. You want it that bad. 
And be careful when you pray for something that you want so bad that's not God's will. Pray that he never gives it to you because it'll draw a wedge between you and him and you'll never be the same. Better to come to him and say, Lord, I wanted that so bad. Why is it that I wanted it so bad? Now it becomes something, it becomes an idol to me and now I must have it. You know, I saw there was a young lady many years ago and I'll end with this, I promise. Well, I shouldn't promise. I won't promise, but I'll just say this. Just the case in point here, there was a young lady many years ago, many years ago. She had a friend, and they both attended this fellowship. The one gal got married and happy, and, you know, everyone, oh, wow, you know, it's great. And, and she, in her heart, got so jealous. She wanted to be married so bad. She was a single gal. She wanted to be married so bad now, her relationship with her friend still was maintained. She wasn't, like, jealous and hating her, her friend, but she wanted to be married so bad she would do anything. And we saw this happening, and we tried to talk to her, but it's like it didn't, it, it didn't register. And so finally one day, she finds some young man who claimed to be a Christian, tells her all the right things. <gasps> you ever see that movie? Uh, never mind. All right, I got to say, you ever see like the, the Ice Age movies and Scrat? Remember Scrat, the, the, the little squirrel? Does anybody see that? Okay, very few, so I'll just bypass it all together right now. If you all nodded your head, I'd go into it. But anyway, so she was just Googles over this guy, but it destroyed her because she got married. She got what she wanted. She just got to have it, got to have it. And, and I can just hear the Lord saying, oh, my daughter. This is not the person for you. This is not the right time. This is not the right time. And she was just unrelenting. And so he pops the question. She marries him. And not too long after, it becomes a disaster. And they get a divorce. And her heart is broken. And God doesn't come and rub your nose in it and say, I told you so. No, he breaks his heart. Because it was, a, it was an open rebellion. It, was, it became an idol to her, right? And I'll do anything, you know, and finally I got it, you know. And it totally train wrecked her for some time. I haven't even seen her since then. I hope she's doing well. But it broke my heart. It breaks your heart to see. Let's make a decision in our, in our life tonight because it's not too late ever to just say, Lord, am I... Am I um, Am I still fighting you or am I surrendering? Am I a willing vessel on that, on that potter's wheel? God, as you begin to shape my life and you're going inside and you're shaping me and you're pulling out the junk and you're fashioning me and then you get out a tool and you're making this thing as it's spinning on the wheel, are you willing to let God do that or are you hanging on for dear life and unwilling to let God do what he wants. The greatest blessing in your life is when you surrender. I need to surrender even more, and I know you probably do too, because guess what? We're all the same. And so let's, let's stand tonight and let's pray, and we'll finish this chapter next week. Hopefully chapter 16 as well. So Father, we just come before you and we we thank you for the examples, Lord, that you've given to us in your word. And, Lord, it's painful to watch. It's painful to hear, Lord, as we see these things happening. And, Lord, uh, 
We just ask tonight specifically, Lord, that just as we have been discussing, Lord, that you would just make us those willing vessels that you can use, Lord, that you wouldn't have to bring us through some calamity, Lord, to, to cause us to shine like silver and gold on the other side, Lord. Help us to be willing to, uh, to die to ourselves and to hand over the keys to every room in our heart and in our life, Lord, that you might have free reign to do with us whatever you want. And Lord, I know that is the greatest blessing, even though we don't think it is. Lord, your will is the best. And your love is the best. And we thank you tonight for saving us. Thank you for all the work that you're doing, God. Please touch us tonight. Give us a good night's rest, Lord. Keep us safe tomorrow as we go about our way. And we just thank you that you're the God who hears, the God who sees. You're the great God of all creation and whom we love. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. 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 God bless you.